Okay, so if I start talking about the Bible, we could be here for a very long time. A long time, yes. Um, have you so, guys have you guys looked at the outline that I sent? I over? did look at the outline, okay. and I realized I could talk an hour <laughs> about everything. About it, I am not joking. I could literally <laughs> no, talk about an hour you. on each of those questions. So, also, you had that whole Christology thing in there. I had a whole three hour lecture on those questions that you asked, <laughs> and I was just like, "Oh no, we are not getting through all of this today." <laughs> Welcome to season two of Bristlecone Firesides casual conversation around a virtual fireside about faith, the earth, the universe, and everything. In this second season, we will be journeying into the spiritual wilds as we explore the theme of wilderness. Joining us around our virtual fireside will be some familiar voices, as well as some new guests to help us rediscover the spiritual power of wild things. We are your hosts, Abby and Madison. Bristlecone Firesides is recorded in the tiny carpet-covered attic of the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance, who is our partner for this and future seasons. For more info about SUA and the fight to protect Utah's stunning Red Rock wilderness, visit SUA.org. James, Derek, can you guys give us a little bit of intro to both who you are and the podcast that you guys run? Uh, the podcast is called Beyond the Block. The whole focus of the show is centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek and I noticed that there wasn't a space to really have conversations at church or even, you know, outside of church that really center us as frequently as we are asked to go to church. So we started the weekly podcast so that people could have a weekly resource through which they could go through the Come Follow Me curriculum, but through the lens of the marginalized. Uh, Obviously, with me being a black man and Derek being a queer man, uh, we wanted to make sure that uh, we did what we could to read the Come Follow Me through, uh, you know, the hermeneutics that we just naturally have. We try and we attempt to, uh, you know, read through, read for other folks as well, uh, women, the disabled, uh, you know, other people on the margins, the poor. Um, but thankfully, since we started our podcast, plenty of other people have also started um you know, their own podcasts through uh, their various hermeneutics. There are at least three different uh, um, Come Follow Me podcasts that center that center women in, uh, you know, in our texts. There's one that centers the disabled. And, you know, there's a couple others out there, too. And we just think it's really cool that uh, that these resources exist for people whose lives, whose narratives and whose struggles are not typically centered uh, through a Mormon theological perspective. Did I miss anything in there, Derek, other than telling them the obvious about you being a yeah. queer theologian? So when you introduce me, you you always name all these good things, but you always leave out that I'm a comedian. I will never <laughs> say that you're a comedian. I am a comedian. I'm not validating that, sir. <laughs> I'm just not going to do it. Uh, but yeah, so um, my main interest is in the text, but also in social justice. And I think part of the intersection here is the injunction to liken the scriptures unto ourselves that is absolutely all of the justification and validation that we need to read the scriptures from the perspective of the margins cool um i uh i so all those podcasts you list off are you know we're centering different voices right and i think kind of the part of the 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 purpose of our, our podcast, Bristol and Firesides, is we're trying to center the earth, right? Because the earth itself doesn't really have a voice. And as we're in the midst of, you know, climate crisis and kind of ecological collapse in our world that I think uh, part of our, part of our, our efforts are to try and center the earth 
And by centering the earth, we've centered everything, right? Because the earth is the circle big mm. enough to hold everyone else. Abby, you got anything else to add to that? Yeah, and I think something else that's growing within environmental topics and, and within the environmental field is this idea of intersectionality um, and the areas of kind of the margins that that tend to cross over with one another. So um, oftentimes uh, the earth is very easily related to those who are marginalized and, and those areas of um, study that are often marginalized as well. Um, and so in that way, they become increasingly relatable to one another. Um, and so naturally, that's something that we wanted to include here as well, um, is kind of the intersectionality and, and relationship between those, those realms as well. I really like that a lot. Well, yeah, that me reminded add, me of... Oh. <laughs> I'm going to go before Derek, because uh -oh. he's going to say some profound stuff. Um, but like, I just really like that uh, Abby said that, because uh, the earth is a character in the, uh, in the scriptures, and we don't often uh, you know, talk about that enough. I didn't hear that phrase, earth as a character, until like a year or two ago. I first heard it from Reverend Dr. Fatima Soleil, and I just thought that was such a profound contribution to our study of the text. And she said that in our conversation around the Book of Mormon. But of course, with us starting the uh, Come Follow Me lessons this year, um, you know, the creation of the earth itself, like that's just an interesting thing to consider in this particular context. A proper relationship with the earth is like inscribed into the creation narrative. Uh, though the earth is almost totally autonomous, humankind is like supposed to serve and preserve it. And we are in this day seeing the devastating effects of not taking care of the land, especially in marginalized communities and especially on marginalized communities where a relationship with the land is part of their culture and spirituality. It's very difficult, if not impossible, to do the work that uh, we do of, you know, justice and reconciliation without, you know, talking about a relationship to the earth. So I, I fully believe in that intersection. And I'm really glad that you uh, brought that up, Abby. Thank you. Oh, James basically said what I was going to say. <laughs> You'll have plenty more, Derek. No, I think that, um, James, when you were saying that, you know, the earth is a character, I think that one of the things that I actually love about our temple liturgy is that it's focused on kind of the creation of the earth. And I think that we, you know, we think about the earth so much as just kind of the backdrop for this cosmic yes. drama, right? Yes. When in yes. reality, if you can, if you can change your eyes and recognize that the earth itself is a character in that, in that, that temple liturgy, it changes it changes the game. The, the earth itself is another yes. player and it's, it's something to, you know, have a relationship with mm. right there in our own temple liturgy. Yes, sir. Thank you. Yes. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And I was thinking about that. There are commands towards climate justice in the scriptures, but you have to really be looking for them. You have to have the mind, uh, that sees them there and sees them implicit in all of the other texts that undergirds the other commandments, because you can't do a lot of the other commandments without taking care of the earth. For example, Ooh. the, um, the Matthew 25 sheep and goats judgment, you can't feed people. You can't clothe people. You can't house people. You can't, you can't, uh, do any of those things if you don't have, a, a sustainable resource base to draw from. And I don't want to center humans as though the only point of the earth was for the humans. 
but that is a key piece to the to the equation here. And we have a challenge in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints because so many people do not think this earth will be here in 500 years. Mm. And it's going to be here. It's going to be here in 500 years. It's going to be here in a thousand years. Those of you that have a faulty eschatology that think the second coming is so certainly going to happen in our lifetime that we don't need to worry about anything else. I think that, is this a fair thing? Do people really think that way? Because why aren't we planning long-term? And I think it must be that some people just don't even think that the earth will need to be preserved for 500 years from now. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I also kind of want to speak to the idea of, um, you know, the earth as a character, but also as something that like still exists in the background, like you said, that, um, you know, the Catholic church uh, has a whole encyclical about, you know, the need to serve the poor, the need to advocate for the poor and needy. Right. Um, And that, you know, if we're like you said, Derek, not um, caring for the earth, then all of those other things fall by the wayside. All of the things that are important to the structure of our religion, just like they are, you know, to the Catholic church um, and and its followers, uh, it's the same kind of idea. We can't support them without, you know, supporting the earth as both a character and a backdrop too. So it's this all encompassing unit um, that becomes really necessary to, you know, to our beliefs in general. Yeah. And unfortunately, all of the inequities that got magnified during COVID um, climate crisis will magnify those inequities as well, because rich people will always buy their way into navigating whatever they need to. But rising sea levels, um, famines, everything that happens will disproportionately affect poor people on this planet. And so rich people can buy their way out of the effects of climate change. But that's not the Christ like thing to do. We should go to the poor in the margins, which is exactly where Christ went, which is exactly um, why we need to talk about Christology. Yes, that's perfect segue to the topic of our podcast. There we go. There we go. (laughs) Um, So the the purpose of having you guys on is we want to talk about Jesus, right? Um, That when Abby and I were concepting this season, we knew that we needed to talk about Jesus because Jesus is kind of a wild figure um, in the New Testament when you can understand Jesus in context. And you can kind of uh, see him in the context of the world that he was in, that Jesus becomes kind of a radical. Um, and so can we, before we, we get into kind of the, the historical context and trying to, you know, talk about, you know, Jesus in the wild, let's just get a brief primer on Christology. Brief primer. I will handle the brief part. <laughs> uh, Derek can uh, go ahead and expand on that if necessary. Yeah. But. yeah. Yeah, if we're talking about Christology, just like a simple definition, I think uh, when we talk about Christology, we're basically just talking about the uh, the nature, the uh, character, the work of Jesus, how he operates, what our relationship to him is, uh, what his divinity and humanity are. Basically, if like we're trying to talk about anything that has to do with Jesus or study anything that has to do with Jesus, Christology is pretty much the blanket term for all that stuff. Yeah. So brief. I I don't like brief, but I do like briefs. So. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Boxes are briefs. 
Um, so, so, so yeah, within the new Testament, you have indications of Jesus's humanity and indications of Jesus's humanity, uh, hu divinity, right? I almost invented a new word. Humanity. Uh, yes. <laughs> but so it's about how you, um, interplay all of the data of the new testament and what comes out of that is your christology and i think you can't really discuss christology without discussing the jesus of history and for the past well since the enlightenment we've looked at jesus through historical lenses and one of the things we've learned is that whenever scholars try to recreate based on their uh, criteria for authenticity the jesus of history typically that Jesus of history looks a lot like them, the scholar that's doing the work, that Jesus has similar priorities, similar values, similar goals. So you can have um, Jesus, the radical hippie, right? You can have Jesus, the conservative lawgiver. You can have all these things and people will be able to find those things in there. And so we'd have to have some caution when we reconstruct the Jesus of history. And this, this caution goes all the way back to Albert Schweitzer uh, over 100 years ago. But my view is we can, still, we can still play in that sandbox. And that's exactly what the gospel authors did. They chose for themselves the idea to portray Jesus in a certain way. And all four portraits in the gospels are different. The portrait of Jesus in Paul is quite different than the uh than the jesus of the gospels and you know the weirdest jesus of all is the jesus of revelation because talk about someone who's violent we always think about this peaceful jesus the jesus of revelation is extremely violent and causes so much um devastation of the environment in revelation so we have to figure out what we're going to do with that i'm i'm still committed to non-violence but uh so yeah that is that's a brief overview of Christology and just trying to figure out wrestling with what Jesus did, who Jesus was and what Jesus accomplished is, is essentially the, the topic of Christology. Yeah. I think the reason I wanted to start there was because you can have really high Christologies, right? Like I think, you know, John, the in the gospel of John, the Jesus that's portrayed in John and in revelation has a really high Christology, right? That Jesus is mm -hmm. kind of this divine superhero, um, mm. and that there are, you know, in, I don't know which gospel, but there, there are lower Christologies, right. Where Jesus's humanity is more on display. And mm -hmm. I think that in, you know, Mormonism today, I think we have kind of centered ourselves on kind of this buff superhero, Jesus, who's white and who's, who seems kind of disconnected. Like, I don't, I'm going to throw the church's Bible videos under the bus. He seems <laughs> alien. He doesn't even seem human. Right. Mm. And, uh, I think that. I think that our perceptions of who Jesus was like really informs how we view ourselves. Right. And I think that there's a balance to be struck between kind of Jesus, the son of God versus Jesus, the son of man. Um, and I feel like we focused a little bit too much on Jesus, the son of God and left kind of Jesus, the son of man in the dust. Um, so what, what do you think are the spiritual consequences or, you know, the cultural consequences for dismissing or forgetting Jesus, the man? Yeah, bro. Um, I think shame is a big one, in my opinion. Uh, we have this tendency to put a great distance between ourselves and Jesus because of uh, like his divinity. And we do tend to envy and focus on the parts of Jesus that are not like us because those parts, you know, captivate us and confuse us at the same time. I mean, that's just human nature. So I do 
kind of get that. We want to understand those parts of Jesus. But in that in that focus on the divine, we hyper fixate on his perfections that we're supposed to aspire to. And that's where you get things like scrupulosity from, though I certainly don't want to minimize the the uh, mental health component that also contributes to that. Um, but anyway, I, I, I tend to, uh, to, um, gravitate toward a lower Christology that validates the humanity a bit more. Uh, one of my favorite treatments of this was the theologian, uh, CS song. He had a bit to say about, um, this lower Christology when he told us that Jesus is not just like us, but he's the same as us, that he doesn't only share humanity with us, but is part of that humanity. He, he addresses in that uh, paper that uh, he addresses a worry that our lower regard of Christ's humanity causes his uh, incarnation and also by extension, his life, his being, his ministry to take on what he calls and what you implied uh, a legendary character, thereby becoming something that uh, is further from human than, you know, he ought to be and consequently further from us than he ought to be. And I think we risk pushing Jesus away from us by not acknowledging his humanity, the range of emotions he felt. And don't get me started on how we basically unsexed Jesus while also <laughs> somehow hyper-masculinizing him. Like that's probably one of the most brazen things Christian churches mm -hmm. have done mm -hmm. in this day to both deify and dehumanize Jesus at the same time. Like you see all these depictions of the crucifixion and how like we hyper-masculinize him, but you know, we also never talk about, you know his desires, or we never talk about his emotions, or this idea that there's even an eros to be discussed. Like there's so much there that we just don't want to talk about or even address. I, I was reading a paper the other day. There are legitimately scholars out there who think Jesus never had an erection. And I'm just like, what, what are you guys doing? Why are you doing this? Like, what is this for? What's the point you are trying to make? Like, there's no shame in talking about that. There's no shame in addressing the human parts of him. In fact, I think there's a lot of disservice we do to ourselves that we do to our churches, we do to our ministry, we do to like our own sense of personal development by just stripping Jesus of these human emotions, these human feelings, these ideas that he felt sadness or fear or arousal. Like, what are we, what are we doing out here? Anyway, that's a long rambly way of saying that... Um, you know, in dehumanizing and deifying Jesus at the same time, we dehumanize and deify and dehumanize and unnecessarily deify ourselves if that makes any sense. Right. I had some some thoughts as well. I think we, with our perspective uh, as Latter-day Saints, have an interesting approach to our, our doctrine of humankind. Um, and this is what we call theological anthropology. It's the doctrine of, of humans. And we have a higher, we talk about high Christology. What about high anthropology? Like we have the highest view of people of any church that I know in terms of our ultimate destination and our pre-mortal uh, origin, uh, the value and worth, like we have the highest view of people. And so when we look at uh, the divinity of Jesus, we cannot separate that from the conversation of the divinity of all of us and then including the divinity of the entire earth and the animals and the plants and joseph smith had some hints towards this now i'm not a joseph smith scholar so um but i do know that the way he talked about 
the world and its origin, its purpose, and the spiritual nature of everything within it, it dignifies and solidifies the value and priceless nature of everything on this planet, including us, but not just us. Yeah, sometimes I wonder too if if we have a tendency to do this because of um, like our inability to really distinguish between the character of God and the character of Jesus very well. Um, and maybe this is too tangential um, to what we're talking about, but I, I think like that same kind of imminence and transcendence of God is sometimes um, misconstrued with that, that perception of Jesus's Christology as well. Um, and so I, I really like what you guys are saying to kind of um, like reinterpret or perhaps reconnect ourselves with this, this lower Christology as well. Um, and, and that humanity that we see um, and actually practice it because it is there. Like you said, it's in these perhaps more nuanced readings um, of the Bible um, and of our own doctrine, but it's not something, um, you know, James, like you said, that we really access a lot um, or put effort into talking about. And I think one of the ways of solving the paradox between high and low Christologies comes from the Christ hymn of Philippians 2, where you have literal equality of God mentioned by Paul in that hymn, but then that is something that is given up or shelved and that the um, that Christ takes upon himself the form of an enslaved person essentially divesting himself of the privileges of divinity to be on the same level as us being found in fashion as a human. And so I think that gets into like all of the uh, lower Christology characteristics that we have that Jesus maybe got tired. Jesus maybe uh, did not have a perfect memory. Like he wasn't, um, did not have access to omniscience and om omnipotence at all points of his, of his journey. Right. He, uh, he got tired. Um, and he uh, got sad, right? And he uh, even felt abandoned by God. But that, remember, is only in uh, Matthew and Mark, where Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, which is not at all in what you have in John, for example. John, the cross is actually a victory in a sense. That is, Jesus says, well, no one takes my life from me. I'm laying it down, right? Um Jesus appears to be in control the whole time in John, moving everything beside behind the scenes. Like, know what he says to Pilate. Um, you know, you don't have any powers except what's been granted to you, right? Um, but what's interesting about that is going back to these issues of unpredictability and vulnerability and uncontrollability. And I think that is the world that Jesus faced. That is the world that ancient peoples faced. And that is the world that we face, that we cannot control everything. We cannot uh, predict everything. And this is somewhat what people would call wildness or wilderness. And this is the, um, it's one of the existential crises of the human spirit throughout every millennium. And, um, and I think the, the Bible has a lot to say about that. Yeah, I think um, why I love uh, kind of a lower Christology approach to Jesus is because I see the purpose of religion and spiritual practice as making us more at home or at one with ourselves and each other and the world that we live in. 
And that the more I see Jesus as a human being, the more I can feel okay about me being a human being. And that the more mm-hmm. Jesus is some divine, like superhero alien, like the less comfortable I am being as human as I am. Right. And so I think that that is a, that's a, if we're talking about Jesus and the earth, I think understanding and fully embracing Jesus was an embodied being who drank water, ate food, who probably mm-hmm. burped, had stomach aches, right? Like those things make Jesus human and that divinizes the human experience to some degree, which allows mm-hmm. me to rest into my own human experience with more calm. Mm-hmm. And he died, of course. Yeah. People forget that. Um, but that's that's kind of the whole point. I think there's, for me, I, I have a particularly high Christology, but the way I leverage that is very important. And I like to ask James this question all the time. How does that function? How does that doctrine function? Or how does that idea function? So for me, here's how it functions. I leverage it to do what I'm already supposed to be doing for my neighbor, right? Because in the Matthew 25 uh, parable of the sheep and goats judgment, we've got this very interesting thing that Jesus says, whatever you did to the least of these, you did to me. And he's leveraging there our attitudes towards him to do what we're supposed to be doing to our neighbor who's in need, our neighbor on the margins. And so that's what I do is... My high Christology means that, yeah, I don't need to have a Joseph Smith style vision. If I want to see Jesus, I can find someone experiencing homelessness. I can find someone experiencing hunger. I can see Jesus. I can, I can literally see Jesus uh, if I choose to and if I choose to do the work. So that's kind of how I take it. Another point to talk about uh, Jesus is like what he did. He taught people. He fed people. He healed people. He met people where they were. And when he taught, um, he taught in a, a first century agrarian Palestinian world where he uses so many elements of the natural world in his teaching, in his parables. Um, you can see a lot of that wrestling with these issues of unpredictability, uncertainty uh, that the natural world provides, right? Are we going to have enough food to eat? Are, are we going to survive this sea voyage? Are we going to survive this storm? All those things um, make up the bulk of why Jesus's teachings are so profound and so relatable and so timeless, because no matter what technology we have, we're still wrestling with all of these wildnesses uh, in our world. If you look at the kingdom of, let's see, I'm going to call it, I'm not going to call it kingdom because that's patriarchal and it's gender. And I'm going to call it the kingdom. If we look at cool. the kingdom of God in uh, the parables of the kingdom in Mark 4 or Matthew 13, we've got some interesting things that the kingdom of God is analogized to things that are wild. For example, this, this mustard, it's, it's a weed, it's uncontrollable. You get one little thing here and it takes over the whole garden or like yeast, like that's wild. It, uh, it'll take over, right? It's, uh, and I think this unpredictability about the reign of God is some, there's something to be said that there, that the reign of God is, is wild itself. And, um, it's like what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter three, the wind 
the word pneuma can be translated wind or spirit. The wind blows where it wishes. You can't predict where it's, where it's going or where it came from. And that's how it is with everyone who is born of the spirit slash wind. Um, I just love the fact that we don't have a tame Jesus. I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis's uh, statement. I don't know the, it, it verbatim, but he talked about um, Aslan the lion, this central Jesus very thinly veiled analogy for Jesus in the Narnia material. And Aslan is uh, not tame, but good. A wild lion, but a good lion. And I think that's what we see or what we can see um, in Jesus's teachings and in Jesus's character. And like I said, all this reconstruction of Jesus gets filtered through. Well, what questions are you bringing to the text? What priorities are you bringing to the text and you will uh, uh, that will be reflected in your biases uh, in, in the way it turns out. Yeah. So I, I reflecting on kind of the wildness of Jesus, you're, you're right. So I've been watching the chosen recently. Um, I finally gave in and started watching. I don't know if you guys have, have watched that at all, but it, it kind of puts the church's Bible videos to shame, I think. Um, but I'm, as I'm watching it, um, I'm really struck. Um, at how well they depict Jesus as an outsider, that Jesus does not come from the traditional religious uh, authority structures of his day. And that's why he is so threatening. Um, and uh, so I, what it's really helped me, or at least my, my, my study of the wild and, and as I've been rereading New Testament and stuff, understanding that Jesus came from outside of traditional religious authority structures and that he came from the margins really transforms how you understand who Jesus is and what his mission was. So why, why is it important for us to understand that Jesus came from the margins to preach to the margins? There's probably uh, several reasons for that. I, I will say most obviously it uh, validates people on the margins. You know, when you consider that a being such as Jesus, who we base our whole faith on was a brown-skinned Palestinian Jew who was homeless, you know, that kind of resituates how we view people in similar situations. And also, Derek, I think if he didn't directly say this, he at the very least alluded to it, it tells us where Jesus is. It tells us where Christ is to be found. It tells us where our focus should be. If Jesus was in the margins, then we will find him in the margins. If Jesus was in the margins, then we should be focusing our ministry in the margins. And if he focused his ministry in the margins, that's where, you know, we should be. We should be focusing on uh, people that don't typically get a voice, whether it's people without addresses, people with disabilities, people of color, women and other people whose voices we typically squelch. And, you know, you also consider who Jesus had around him, you know, a ton of women, um, a lot of very different uh, you know, kinds of men. He had a publican serving with him. He had, um, you know, Luke wrote, wrote one of the gospels and he may have been a Gentile. Like there's a lot of evidence that points to that. And uh, I think finally, what I would say about the significance of addressing, you know, Jesus as somebody who was on the margins is it also shows us what God can do with nobodies. Yes. Um, and that's, that's, a, that's a pretty big deal. This is a common theme throughout the entire text. Um, 
in the Hebrew Bible, there's a lot of stories of God doing something with the last born child or the second born child or the least appealing child who is born to a family. There are stories of him in the, uh, you know, Book of Mormon doing similar things with a younger brother instead of the firstborn. We see in the Doctrine and Covenants multiple promises or indications that God will do something with the weak things of the world. We see this in the New Testament as well. Paul talks about himself this way. He talks about Jesus and other people this way who were called to the ministry. There are, there's just a lot of illusions, and including this one with Jesus, that teach us that God can do a lot with nobodies, like the wisdom of God greater than the, or the foolishness of God greater than the uh, wisdom of man. And that was another uh, allusion Paul made to say that God can do a lot with nobody. So I, I think that is a, another reason that uh, this focus or just pointing out that Jesus was in the margins and that he spent most of his time in the margins and was born in the margins, why that's important. And that also goes to show that uh, God really can't do much with those that are in the center of the power structures. They're not available. I mean, if, if they be, may choose to make themselves available and repent, then yes, God can use them. But they're not ready. Um, it's kind of like Jesus said, I'm not here to call the righteous to repentance. It's the people who know that they need to repent that I'm here for. And so he focuses on the one instead of the 99 and this this surprised people all throughout his ministry and got people angry all throughout his ministry um, which means if we're not making people angry well we're not being very christ-like <laughs> that's a great endorsement for activism and social justice causes yeah i mean i've just been thinking about that too that it, it, not only did he come from the margins but also like his teachings weren't trying to maintain a status quo of any sorts um, and, and rather did the opposite often, you know, upsetting many people. Um, and I think sometimes that's what it feels like to be a contemporary follower of Christ. You know, when you're really trying to consider his teachings um, is it feels very much against the grain to to kind of extend to those margins. And I feel like that's kind of further confirmation of, you know, this work being important and being kind of centered around the teachings of Christ as well. Hey, all. Thanks for joining us around the fireside to talk about things big and small. An important part of Bristlecone Firesides is putting our faith and spirituality in contact with the earth that unites us. So we'd love to keep in touch with you in the future, whether it's to share a simple call to action, send an occasional exclusive behind the scenes update, or ask you for your input on the future direction of Bristlecone Firesides. To stay in the loop, text us the phrase Fireside Utah to 52886. We won't fill up your messages, but when we do send you something, we promise it's going to be good. That's F-I-R-E-S-I-D-E, -E, Utah, to 52886. Yeah, I, uh, so I, I think we've done a good job of kind of like laying the groundwork for Jesus as, as an important figure for us. Obviously, Jesus is an important figure for us to look at, but but specifically in the sense that he, you know, he was kind of a wild figure for his times. Um, and I think what I want to do is go through some instances in Jesus's life that we find in the Gospels 
um, and kind of dissect them a little bit and see how they demonstrate Jesus as coming from the margins, as Jesus being a figure, a kind of wild figure. Um, and so I think to start, we should start uh, with Jesus's baptism, because I think that that is kind of where a lot of the, the gospel, you know, it's pretty early on in a lot of the gospels. Um, and I think it's a fantastic example of Jesus's relationship to both the earth and to wildness. Um, so can we can we put Jesus's acceptance of John's baptism into a little bit of context? Um, I know that there were active temp- temple rituals at the time um, for the remission of sins, um, yet Jesus chooses to forgo those and and accepts John's baptism out in the wild of water outside of the temples and rituals. Um, can we unpack that a little bit? Goodness. Um, there, there, there's a couple things to acknowledge here. Um, something that would complement our theology quite well is just this idea of authority. Um, that's kind of a big thing. Why did Jesus go all the way to John the Baptist when he could have just stayed, like, like you said, there was plenty of other places he could have gone to for baptism, but he chose John. And there is a recognition perhaps in that of, uh, John the Baptist's authority that he would take that journey. Um, but at the same time, what exactly gave John the Baptist his authority? That's a whole nother thing to unpack. There's also this notion of familiarity and validation that we see in the wild Jesus and also in the wild John the Baptist. There was probably something that was more familiar to Jesus in John. And that's a whole other thing we could unpack there. I think when we have a further conversation on the wilderness, and I think we're going to get to that a little bit later, we can unpack that a little bit more. But uh, since that's where my focus is going to be, I'm going to kind of taper my thoughts there and uh, pass it over to Derek. Yeah, I have I have some thoughts, probably like seven thoughts. I don't know how many of these I'll get to. <laughs> but first question is the why of Jesus's baptism, because baptism by immersion for the forgiveness of sins was um, as as uh, John practiced it was really somewhat radical in that what he was doing was taking a ritual, an ordinance, the mikvah immersion that would have been appropriate for a convert to Judaism, someone leaving uh, uh, the, the world of polytheism, the world of idolatry, the world of sin and becoming a Jew that even though becoming a Jew is a little bit anachronistic here in this period, but uh to, but to ask of this, to ask Jews to participate in this ritual is a very, very profound and dramatic request. It's saying, look, you've got to re-hold, re, retool everything you've got from the ground up. You have to basically uh, repent like a um, like a Gentile would. And that is there were washings um, in in the Hebrew Bible. We've got uh, various uh, washings prescribed in, in Leviticus 14, 15, and 16. Um, we have obviously offerings uh, for the forgiveness of uh, sins, uh, sacrificial offerings. But this particular baptism, this immersion, uh, really is is ba- is a is an admission of repentance and and a forgiveness of sins. And it is a, a renewal. It is a new identity. It's parallel to the baptism of Israel through the Red Sea, where they uh, got a new identity and a new start uh, after 
their exodus from Egypt. Now let's talk about, well, why, if Jesus was sinless, did he need to be, be baptized? Because clearly John didn't even think he needed to be baptized. And the answer is God's amazing and unpredictable solidarity with God's people. Beautiful. God's amazing and unpredictable solidarity with God's people, stooping down to reach even to be this example of righteousness for all of us. Now, notice what's not in this example to fill, fulfill all, all righteousness. There's no marriage, right? Like a lot of people say, we got to get married. Like, well, Jesus didn't get married to fulfill all righteousness. We don't have any narrative of that in any of our canonized works. Um, so it can't be used against single folks or queer folks the way it is. Um, but there's another lesson we can learn from this is how John was surprised. John was surprised. And that shows. Now, John was one of the greatest prophets in the entire Bible. But this shows that even great prophets can completely misunderstand God's plan and be surprised by the next turn of events that God has. And this is true today as well. Like our prophets will be surprised. Even great prophets, even true prophets can completely misunderstand the plan because John was like, no, you, you don't need to be baptized. I need to be baptized of you. And, and, and Jesus said, nope, let it be. And I think that is the attitude that we need to have towards our prophets today. Like one of Christ's breaths can wipe away a lot of the um, uh, assumptions that we have around our present day prophets. And John was, of course, already wild enough himself. Like, look at the way he dressed. He did not wear a suit and tie. Uh, we know what he wore, right? Well, he's like the, one of the only figures that his clothing was actually pointed out. Exactly. Which means it right? was really weird. Yep. And so that's probably what I'll just say. Um, I've talked enough about that. And, you know, we're already like half an hour and we're only like <laughs> a few paragraphs into your long list of stuff. Yeah, that's so. uh, that's pretty typical. Um, yeah, I, uh, you know, back before, uh, you know, Briscoe and Firesides actually got started, um, I was coming up with names and lo Locusts and Wild Honey was actually on the, on the list of names. And it's because mm -hmm. that's what, that's what J John the Baptist ate. That was his diet and it was very non-kosher. And so it's, uh, I'm, I'm very captivated by this idea that Jesus would go to, well, John. hold on. Locusts are kosher. If you have the right locusts. Okay. Well, if you have the right locusts. and honey is kosher as well. Okay. Well then I was wrong, but, um, <laughs> that, uh, that Jesus would, would, would choose to be baptized outside of typical authority structures. Um, just is very, I'm, I'm very captivated by that because John's, John, John's dad was, uh, like, really deeply embedded in kind of the traditional religious hierarchies. Mm -hmm. Right. And so for, I, I, the kind of the symbolism of all that, it just is really striking to me. Um, and, uh, I, something that I think we should probably marinate on a little bit more as Latter-day Saints who have really finely defined, um, authority and temple liturgies. Right. And I and think it all that. goes. My bad. Oh. You go ahead. It all goes back. I'll be real quick. It all goes back to, well, what does this point towards, right? The temple is supposed to be pointing towards something. It's not an end in itself. Um, uh, prophetic leadership is not in an end in itself. Uh, human existence isn't an end in itself, but yet sometimes we treat the environment that way. Uh, 
But we have to look at all these things, not in as ends and of themselves, but what are they pointing to? And I think that's what Jesus wants us to get back to. It's not so much the um, a condemnation of the temple itself, but sort of a re-cleansing and getting back to, well, what was it supposed to be pointing to all along? And so I don't want any critique of the temple to be twisted into a critique of Judaism, right? We don't want to do that yeah, yeah. Uh, as, as though some people have done. Yeah. So that's all I was going to say. Jesus as a reformer rather than a revolutionary. James, are you going to say something? I was just going to point out that uh, this thing that you wanted us to marinate on, this is not just in the New Testament. It's also in the Book of Mormon as well. We see patterns of uh, parents or rather children deviating vastly from the path of their parents but that deviation being totally fine, like the uh, like the pacifist Lamanites and their children who like straight up like the stripling warriors straight up going to war. You know what I'm saying? And both paths were fine, like they were totally acceptable and like no love was lost. No, um, no uh, smiting by God was done like we we often. We, we don't often focus on these deviations we see in our text or these deviations we see in how people among us live as just as sanctified as our own. Or, you know, to make a more contemporary example within the church, we see, you know, I don't know how old you guys are, but, you know, I'm a little older. I uh, grew up in an era where it was still totally fine to be queer phobic. And now the younger generations are very much not that. And, um, you know, just because our previous generations understood one way to live things or one way to, uh, you know, honor God, quote unquote, doesn't mean that the way our children are going to do it needs to be the same. It can be just as sanctified as our own. And um, there, there's room for all that. Absolutely. I think that translates really well into kind of a perspective of the environment as well, that, you know, for for generations, we've put the environment in a particular box or we've had the a notion of the earth um, that has been interpreted in kind of a singular way. Um, and it's it hasn't been I mean, if you look at environmentalism and and these kind of environmental topics, many of them. Are, are very recent, you know, kind of uh, really starting to burgeon within like the 70s. So not that long ago. And I think that's kind of um, a, a very good representation of what you were just talking about, that we have these newer interpretations that are offered to us um, or that we kind of create. Um, and in some ways they're I don't want to say better, but it is, you know, just opening up the gospel to, to greater paths and greater understandings um, than a singular mindset that, that we've previously kind of adhered to. Paul does a good job of that too, by the way. And we don't have enough time to talk about Paul, but yeah. like, <laughs> we love Paul sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes. Yes. Thank you for saying that. Well, I do want to say something about um, we all have our primary issues that we think about, that we write about, that we research about. And like you've mentioned that there is the importance of intersectionality here. And I think climate justice, I don't talk about enough. And, and yes, you can, you can hold me accountable to that. Like um, I have the right positions, I think on this, but I don't talk about it enough just because there's so many uh, queer people in pain that come to me. And that's the thing that I focus on. And that's the thing that I talk about a lot. But what I want to say is 
like which is more important, like queer rights or or environmental justice? And here's my answer is like we queer people have to have a home, right? If the world doesn't exist anymore and we've trashed it all and there's no place for humanity, like there's no place for queer people. And we have a significant time deadline with climate justice and we need to work on climate justice or else there's the, the, all these other things will will not even be a relevant conversation because humanity will not have a hospitable home to live in. It's like a Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but on a exactly. cultural level, like how can we right. possibly create a better world for people if we can't even get food or water? Okay. Um, I think this is a good uh, point to transition to kind of one of the second scenes of, of wilderness and in Jesus's life, which is the temptations. Oh. Um, Cause this is pretty, pretty central. You know, Jesus goes from being baptized to going out and fasting for 40 days in the wilderness. And I think there are, there are a couple uh, parts of the text that I think w- are worth uh, talking about. First um, the, the text says that the spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted um, and I think that's something worth marinating on. Um, I know that there are probably some, you know, Joseph Smith translations that massage that a little bit. Um, but I think that, uh, it's worth asking the question of like, why the wilderness and why did the spirit drive, w- drive Jesus to the wilderness to be tempted? Hmm. So I got a lot of thoughts on yeah. wilderness where it pertains to, you know, just people's spiritual journeys. I have to preface this by saying, I'm not entirely sure, but I do think about all the things that happen in the wilderness, scripturally speaking. You think about the first example where we see this. I'm not entirely sure that Adam and Eve had to go into a wilderness. We just know that they were driven out of the Garden of Eden, and we don't really have any knowledge of what happened between the time that they left the Garden of Eden and the time that they settled wherever they settled. But I can only imagine that that was a period of you know, loneliness, but also growth. I'm, I'm thinking specifically about the first example of being in the wilderness where we see clear changes in uh, the people that have to go into the wilderness, like the children of Israel. Uh, we, and, you know, obviously Jesus, uh, Lehi's family, even the pioneers. Um, but like we think about what happens in the wilderness, we get some of the most significant revelations, the most significant inbreakings of the divine, uh, the most significant spiritual learning, and you know probably the most universal of the experiences that happen in the wilderness is learning to be dependent on God and learning to be independent of earthly things, specifically where people just came from. Like all that happens in the wilderness. When you think about the children of Israel, one of the primary obstacles they had was learning to become independent of life in Egypt and learning to rely on God, like learning to get rid of the flesh pots of Egypt where they were in slavery and learning to be free and dependent on the manna of God. Like that is a big part of the wilderness experience. The wilderness is a place of, you know, loneliness, of suffering, of, uh, you know, being stripped of resources, but it's also a place of growth. It's a place of education. It's a place of communion. The wilderness has significance primarily in uh, separating us from the world and combining us with the divine. So like when I think about the wilderness, I think about the significance of just getting, being away 
from the things that we are ordinarily conditioned to depend on and being closer and learning to depend on uh, on the divine. So I think it's the wilderness because that is where those kinds of things happen. This is where Jesus's growth, this is where his line upon lining was going was going to continue. It had to be the wilderness. Yeah, I have just some sort of footnotes to what James is uh, has said. Um, like, first of all, if we look at the whole Adam and Eve narrative, when they were in the garden, the food literally just fell off the trees for them. They did not have to toil. And a part of the curse was now you're going to have to work for your food. And so when they were expelled from the garden, it was um, this unpredictability and wildness and, and effort that we that uh, uh, that James is, is talking about. And let me just put a footnote here that um, this is what happens when you leave straight people in charge of the planet, they mess up the climate. <laughs> I'm just saying, <laughs> talk about Adam and Eve. Well, look what they did. Um, <laughs> if it was Adam, Adam and Steve, Steve would have done there. this. Yeah, Adam and Steve would have been been busy doing something else. Uh, so, well, anyway. Uh, see, I told you, he always leaves out the comedian part. Always. Um, the other thing is, uh, there there have been people who have said that Israel needed the time in the wilderness um, to turn over one generation because one of the first things that any uh, persecuted or oppressed people does when they get power is they turn around and oppress someone else. And uh, what this 40 years in the wilderness did was allowed the death of everyone except for Caleb and Joshua so that none of the people who entered Israel actually knew the oppression of Egypt. Interesting. I've never actually thought about it like that. Yeah. And so, um, so if you're going to create a, 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 a people in right relationship with each other in right relationship with God and in right relationship with the land, the, the land is a, like we said, a big character in the Torah, all of those covenant relationships being right, you need to, uh, to resituate that, situate that correctly. Um, now the wilderness was a time of testing for Israel as they journeyed through the wilderness and they didn't exactly pass those tests. And so I think what we've got in the gospels is a recapitulation where Jesus is uh, reenacting what Israel was supposed to do, but now getting it right. And I think by passing those tests um, now proves to be uh, who, who Jesus said he was and proves that he has the merit and the toughness and the integrity to actually go out and do what God has for the rest of, of God's mission for Jesus is. And there is a piece of isolation because we're getting Jesus at a very vulnerable state, uh, food, water, isolation from people, all of these needs that you need. Um, he's at his most vulnerable. And that's what the temptations were temptations towards bread, temptations towards power over people. Right. Uh, so that that's getting Jesus at his most vulnerable. And I think what's what I love about this, of course, is that Jesus quotes the Bible, right? That is where and he actually quotes everything that he quotes is from the wilderness uh, materials in the Torah, actually. So you are actually um, getting a really beautiful thing that if I talk about it, we're going to be here for another hour. So just just leave it there. Um, I think, uh, as we, you know, we talk about what the specific temptations were, um, 
you know, one of the, um, I'm a big fan of wisdom, spirituality, uh, you know, Franciscanism and Richard Rohr and meditation and kind of Eastern spirituality. And so I think a lot about ego and about kind of big self, small self. Um, and, uh, something that, um, that I've, I've heard before is that the ego wants three things. The ego wants separation. It wants superiority and it wants control. And that those are the three things that we need to learn how to work against in order to, you know, to uh, rest back into our big self rather than our small egoic selves. And when I'm looking through the, the temptations of Jesus, I see in them kind of a corollary or, a, you know, a parallel to the separation, superior, superiority and control. And they're all forms of misuse of power. Um, and so... Turning mm-hmm. stones to bread, um, I see it, you know, we, we, we talked about Adam and Eve when they were in the Garden of Eden and, and fruit just fell off of the trees for them. They didn't have to do any work. Well, after the fall, human beings had to either buy food or work for food. And there was this kind of our relationship with the world is that you, you can't, you have to, you have to put in something to get something right. And this temptation to turn stones into bread separates Jesus from that material reality and separates him further from the human condition. Um, and, uh, that would kind of play into that egoic need to be separated and that Jesus ultimately resists that temptation um, and further, further like tightens his solidarity with the human experience. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, I don't think I've quite heard it framed this way, but this temptation, the first temptation we have here is that Jesus was tempted to dominate his environment, right? To take something from the environment, the rocks, turn them into bread. And I think that is a very strong temptation that we can leverage into issues of climate justice and responsibility of covenant people towards the earth. And I love how there's other materials in the Bible about this. Like if you look at the second paragraph of the Shema, which is in Deuteronomy chapter 11, God says, look, if you keep my commandments, I will bless you with rains and fertility of your fields and all this other stuff. But if you do not obey these commandments, I will shut the rains and you will have no food. And people might say, well, this is just like a divine uh, um, marionette type thingy, but you could interpret it in an ecological justice way of if we don't do the right things, we will have famines, we will have storms, we will have um, uh, food justice issues as a direct and logical physical result of the fact that we are not doing the just thing. And that's why I love that Shabbat actually gives you a break. Many of the prohibited melacha, the, the prohibited labors on uh, Shabbat, actually involve domination over the environment, buying, selling, agriculture, building something, um, lighting a fire, extinguishing a fire, all of these things, uh, harvesting. I don't, there's, there's a lot of them. There's 39 of these prohibited categories, and they all end up needing the, uh, they all end up revolving around the um, need to control our environment. And we take one day, at least in Judaism, take one day a week. You can't obviously take off forever from that, but taking off one day of week of refraining from dominating over the environment and just being vulnerable in that way, I think is something that Jesus, Jesus was a Shabbat keeping uh, individual. Right. And so I think, Leveraging each of those things, we can um, we can do. And look at the flood, the flood narrative. People want to take that to be about something else, but you could say, look, wickedness leads to climate devastation. 
And obviously we have to demythologize it, right? Because uh, we don't believe that, or at least I don't believe that God literally genocided the whole world just because he was mad about this and couldn't think of another way of redeeming the world, right? <laughs> we, we've got this highly intelligent being who couldn't think of another way of redeeming the world other than killing everyone yeah, and starting over. over. <laughs> yeah. So, <clears throat> but we can have a lesson there about the actions and injustice that we have definitely have uh, an impact on the environment and it has an impact on uh, innocent, uninvolved people elsewhere. I think something else uh, just that you just said kind of reminded me of something that we said earlier too, that kind of these structures are there within our doctrine and we don't, sometimes it's, it's just um, recognizing them and applying them with a more nuanced interpretation or, or recognizing the more nuanced interpretation of these things. I recently read an article that was like, kind of saying that members of the church are, are essentially the, um, how, how did they put it? You'll have to edit my, my pause out Madison, but essentially like unintentionally one of the most environmentally friendly churches, because we have every Sunday, this ethic, um, or, or this understanding of, um, keeping the Sabbath day holy, which includes a lot of these environmentally friendly, um, ideologies of, you know, not, not going to work. So we, we take a break from driving for the most part, unless, you know, you live a block away from your church and insist on driving, um, or, you know, this, these practices of fasting too. Um, and sometimes I think of, you know, what if we, we kind of reinstilled this notion of, um, an environmental approach to fasting too, and kind of our connection to the earth. And Madison and I have talked about this in, in um, previous episodes with other guests as well, but this interpretation of, you know, understanding fasting as our dependence on the earth and, and the life-giving blood that it gives to us, right? Um, and so I think in some ways that's already part of the structure of our doctrine as well um, and our practices even, but it's just that interpretation and that understanding um, that that we need to make up for and, and recognize. Um, and I feel like these, these chapters um, and, and these stories of Christ are the best way to kind of reintroduce that, that ideal um, into those practices. Then let's turn to the the next temptation was uh, that the Satan takes Jesus up to the pinnacle of the temple um, and uh, says, throw yourself off because the angels have charge concerning you and they'll, they'll catch you. Um, I see this as kind of a, a temptation to the misuse of religious power um, that, you, you know, if we're talking about the ego's need for, for separation, superiority and control, I can imagine a teenage Jesus who uh, was running circles around the religious authorities of his day. Um, I could imagine a, a temptation towards some degree of self-righteous superiority. Um, and uh, and uh, that I think Jesus's kind of overcoming of that is really uh, telling about who Jesus was because there's almost nothing as as seductive as the as the 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 superiority that one gets from um, righteous living. <laughs> uh, do you guys have thoughts on what is the temptation to misuse religious power and and self righteousness? 
I think one of the biggest uh, temptations is to hold on to that power and to, uh, you know, use it for the sake of, I guess, being better than other people. One of my uh, favorite chapters in the uh, New Testament is uh, Matthew 23 and uh, how Jesus condemns religious leaders of his day. And one of the more explicit things he says is, you know, woe be unto you who, you know, work so hard for a proselyte. And then when you get him, you make him 10 times or twice as much of a child as hell as you are. Like, this is one thing that Jesus regularly dealt with when religious leaders of his day came up to him and like tried to trap him and trick him. They asked him all these bad faith questions because they wanted to delegitimize him because his legitimacy delegitimized them. You know, they were trying to hold on to their power because with their power, they could control other people, not just, you know, religiously, but also politically. And um, if they lost that power, you know, I can't speak to everything that they would have lost. Uh, definitely influence, definitely, um, you know, probably money, probably position. I don't know what else they would stand to lose in that day. I'm not entirely sure of what, uh, you know, the political religious situation was like back then. But you can definitely see that the religious leaders of Christ's day were threatened by him. And there was literally nothing they could do about it. I mean, that's one of the reasons they killed him is because like, okay, we, we can't stop the Jesus revolution. We're, we're going to have to kill him. Like he is threatening our corrupt political system. He is threatening, you know, the power we are trying to have. He threatens our power. So um, sorry, rambling a little bit, but this is just all to say that um, one of the biggest temptations of that power is, I suppose, a security that being better than other people has. And obviously that has layers um, in a variety of ways. Um, you know, when we talk about social locations, when we talk about how we treat land, when we talk about how we use the earth and exploit the ground for our own gain, like there, there, there's a lot happening there. And um to speak to this whole temptation of religious power, I think Jesus is trying to preserve proper relationship, uh, you know, with earth, but also with the people that he's around. And this is ultimately the big temptation of misuse of religious power is abusing the relationships we have with those we have stewardship over uh, and, you know, others we would have power over uh, for the sake of feeling superior to other people. This goes back to that ego thing that you were talking about earlier, Madison, and also, uh, I mean, there's there's probably other temptations, too, but I'll probably leave it there. Just saying that that abuse of religious power is um, ultimately one where we exploit others or abuse our position to exploit or put down others for the sake of preserving our ego or feeling better than people. This is what Jesus condemned the religious leaders of his day for. And this is what they regularly tried to do to him over and over again. And this is ultimately what they tried to do when they killed him, which Jesus also, you know, discarded with his mm -hmm. resurrection. So <laughs> that's the temptation. That's the, that's the fruit. Yeah. I mean, one of the most prophetic of Joseph Smith's teachings is that in DNC 121 about unrighteous dominion and the powers of the priesthood. And this is something that we don't talk about enough in the church. I think people talk about it like, well, like, well, I bet I better be a good priesthood leader in my local ward calling something like that. But we don't talk about it enough in terms of the leaders of the church, right? To what extent are they 
uh, tempted to exercise unrighteous dominion because the more power you have, the more temptation there is, right? And I think the leaders of the church um, are caught in this this thing that Joseph Smith himself realized that um, as soon as you get uh, some power, it's it's very easy to to use it wrongly. And of course, as soon as you use it wrongly, amen to the to the to the priest of that person, right? If they say, just because I have this priesthood office, you have to do what I say, that is absolutely the backwards understanding of the gospel. It doesn't respect the agency of that individual and it doesn't respect the nature of the authority of priesthood authority, which is that of persuasion, patience, love, oh, just doing everything you can to walk with that person and explain to them gently and patiently until they are brought to an understanding of it. And if you don't, aren't able to persuade that person, they're not obligated to do it, right? That's what I love about Jesus's authority. He never named his authority. He never said, well, I was ordained by so-and-so, right? I have this calling. He never said that. He didn't even have a legitimate, quote, priesthood lineage. He was not of the tribe of Levi, right? He was not literally a priest. And in fact, uh, the author of Hebrews goes into this whole loophole of saying, well, technically, you know, I'm going to claim a, a higher Melchizedek priesthood, um, which wasn't even a, an actual thing, literally that way. Um, but what, what I was saying is Jesus spoke by persuasion. People looked at his character and his actions and saw the alignment of all of them. And that is what moved people. Same thing with Paul. Like he did, he he, he used persuasion. He made a case. He had to make a case. That is what apostolic authority is, making a convincing case and meeting people where they are and um, and helping them along. And, and they, either they're going to be persuaded or they're not. And I think I, I really wish that um, we in the church would do more of that rather than just saying, well, I've got this calling. I have this role. You have to do what I say. You have to sustain me. You have to submit to me. You have to do that is not that's not the gospel. That's not the, the church that I joined as a convert six years ago. Um, so, yeah, I joined because of the gospel. Anyway, so, yeah, that's the long way around of talking about this temptation to misuse religious power. And I want to say one more thing about authority. Latter-day Saints love to boast about authority. Ooh, we're the only church. We're only the true church. We're the only one with priesthood authority. We're only one with temples that work. We're like, we're the like, yeah, whatever. So <laughs> Jesus never boasted in in his temp, like in a physical temple. He never boasted in his authority. He never boasted in his calling. Like he when he was directly asked about authority. You know what he said? He didn't answer them because it doesn't matter. In, in Matthew 21, they went up to him and said and challenged his authority. And, and he said, uh, well, he, there's that famous thing. Well, he asked about John the Baptist's authority. Well, where did John the Baptist get his authority from heaven or, 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 or not? And they couldn't answer. And then Jesus said, well, neither am I going to tell you where I get my authority. I think that is the true Christ-like answer about where our authority is. It's not who ordained you. It's not what church membership you are. It's not what temple you have. All this boasting about your authority is is uh, nauseating to God. Let me just put it that way. Yeah, I love that actually because I. Uh, well, that's why I said it. Well, that's thank you for saying that, so that I can love what you said. Um, because I I think this temptation to 
you know, misuse religious power is founded on, you know, well, who, what authority or authority is kind of this word that we use to gatekeep Mm -hmm. permission Mm -hmm. giving and like, and power structures and status. Right. And Jesus's absolute refusal to play that game is like Mm -hmm. such it's, it's worth emulating. It's worth, it's worth like practicing uh, what Jesus was doing. Um, And to me, that's just, it's, it just like puts a fire in my heart. <laughs> Not playing that game is something we actually talked about this week, Derek. Oh, really? If, if you remember that. Yeah. But not playing that game. Just that's, that was a big thing we made a big deal of this week. And so I thank think you for it, saying that. I think it also goes back to like, how does this doctrine function? Because there are times where it may, may make sense to appeal to authority. Like if someone is really and wrongly and profoundly experiencing shame because of their sin and they don't know that they're forgiven, I'm going to tell them, well, I have the authority to forgive you. Right. Yeah. Right. And I think that is a, a, how does it function? It is functioning in a just and loving way to protect a child of God from unnecessary uh, temptation towards a, a satanic lack of hope. Right. Or if someone needs to be, um, uh, to held accountable, right? I think there's times where we have the authority to name that authority when we are calling people to repentance, like those who are treating people unjustly. We have the right to to follow those procedures that Jesus outlined in calling people to repentance. So there is room for that, and there's room for for having the keys uh, to to bind and loose sins. But the question is, how does it function? Are you using it to serve people? Which is what we say about the priesthood or are you using it to insulate yourself um, and insulate your own privilege and advantage? And I, I fear that that's uh, what we're tempted to do too much. Full agree. Abby. Yeah. I feel like also part of that misuse of power. And like you said, kind of insulating um, that, that power is also maintaining a level of comfort too, right? I mean, I think people mm. were so resistant to this law or, or kind of higher law that Jesus was attempting to establish. Um, and that was because they had maintained a level of comfort in what they were practicing, especially those in, in certain positions of power, because what's the incentive for them to change when it would require them to perhaps consider the poor and needy to consider people that were different from them. Um, you know, if you're in a position of power, you're, uh, you know, there's no incentive to change. And so I think that's another aspect of authority that, that kind of, um, binds us and, and tempts us is, by changing, it requires a level of discomfort that I don't want to commit to. And we see that, you know, within environmental practices too, that, you know, I don't want to be inconvenienced by uh, remembering my neighbor through my own level of consumption, or um, I don't want to have to sacrifice something that I find to be a comfort of every day um, when it means that, you know, down the road, um, it may be more important and in that, you know, immediate sacrifice, um, as opposed to down the road when it becomes a dire, dire circumstance. Right. And so I think we see that, uh, reflected here too, is that that level of comfort or, um, you know, the kind of imposed discomfort, uh, that following these practices or relinquishing authority might have. 
Okay, I think let's move on to uh, the the third and final temptation, um, which is where uh, Satan takes Jesus up into a high place, which is likely a mountain, and shows him all the kingdoms of the, of the earth and says, if you will uh, bow down and, and worship, worship me, I'll give you everything, all of these things. Um, and I think there's kind of an, at least when I was growing up, you know, in kind of in church, there's a knee jerk reaction to say that, well, all the kings of the kingdoms of the world were already Jesus's. So this temptation, like, you know, didn't make any sense, um, or make, makes it redundant. Um, but I think there's a deeper lesson here that Jesus didn't really want political power. Um, that throughout the gospels, he's almost hesitant to fully accept his public, his publicity and his popularity. Um, and that Jesus lived in a time when the church and state made martyrs out of people who grew too, too popular, like John the Baptist. Um, and that Jesus also had to kind of bear the projections and the adulations of everyone around him who wanted him to be a political or a military leader. Um, and so in this, in this temptation, what I really hear Satan saying is be everything that um, they want you to be. Take the power that they want to give you. Uh, do you guys have any thoughts on, on this temptation? I do not because that is the first time I'm hearing that particular interpretation. All right, cool. Um, I think it's beautiful and I think there's definitely something to be said there, but I feel like I am going to say a whole lot of nonsense if I try to speak to that. So <laughs> I'm a past le beton to Derek. Yeah. So um, I think the logic behind this temptation is that Satan is allowed some limited and restrained freedom to, to do random stuff in this world, right? We see this with Job, that he's given divine permission. Uh, but we also see this in the New Testament in a, in a number of places in Revelation as well, where, where Satan has some limited power, right? And I think what the, the deal is, like Satan would say, well, look, I'm just going to not cause trouble, right? I'm just going to abandon uh, the little authority that I have to, to do stuff here in this world, and I'll just let you have all the, the kingdoms here. I think that's probably what the temptation was, but I think the, um, to me, what, what I, the way I've been reading this temptation recently is not towards unrighteous dominion, but actually towards unrighteous submission, right? Because what the temptation was, was to submit to and bow down to this authority. And I think we talk about unrighteous dominion a lot, but we don't talk about unrighteous submission a lot. And by unrighteous submission, I mean doing something just because a leader told you to. That is Nuremberg level defense, right? We should be beyond that. And I think so many people in the church uh, harm queer people and their justification is they're going to quote a proclamation that's on their wall. Or they're going to quote some leader that says, they told me to do this to you, so I have every right to do this to you. I'm like, no, what happened to the whole like piece where you, the buck stops with you, right? Where you are accountable for implementing the thing that you, you're accountable for gaining a testimony of the thing that you're trying to do. You're accountable for doing it, right? Um, so I think there's this temptation to unrighteous submission in the church that we don't talk about enough. And I could talk on about this. If you want to see Paul's discussion on unrighteous submission, I would say the entire book of Galatians. He is writing and appealing to the Galatian Gentiles to say, no, do not submit to these people who claim to you, come to you claiming religious authority. You need to actually um, be independent of that, and you need to find dignity on your own terms and do not submit to them. And I think we don't hear, hear enough of the sin of unrighteous submission. And it's rampant in the church. There's lots of unrighteous submission. 
and um and i don't want to um have this conversation twisted into certain ways that people are abusively uh needing to submit uh, i mean are are abusively are in abusive situations and need to submit for their own safety right sometimes people don't have a choice sometimes people are coerced or misled or 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 whatever into to going along with something but that's not what i'm talking about i'm talking about going along with something for your own advantage which is exactly what the temptation of jesus was that's a really unique take on that because i i you're right when i was creating these questions i just jumped straight to all the kings of the earth but i wasn't really thinking about how submission was the gateway to getting everything right that's a good take i really like that that's really powerful yeah. Well, thanks. Well, especially if we consider it like environmental things too, that like, um, that, uh, we, we kind of have this, this story in our head that we can, it's kind of the American story that you can have anything you want as long as you do the work. Right. And that's kind of this capitalistic American story that we tell ourselves where we, we think we can have literally everything when, if we literally, if everyone had literally everything, we wouldn't have an earth anymore to live on. Right. And that it, it, that our, right. our unrighteous submission to this story is in fact the thing that is that is eroding the earth out from underneath our feet. It's interesting. Abby, you got any thoughts on that? Um, no, I mean, I think you covered it just kind of on a similar vein of that, Madison. Like I, you hear a lot of like justification um, for kind of moral uh like missteps with the earth, um, through kind of political beliefs as well. Um, often saying like, well, people need jobs or like humans are like human lives, human livelihood, all these things are at stake. Um, but it's, it's such a backwards way of thinking because it prioritizes something that, that feels unsustainable in the long run. So that's all I'll say. Sorry. (laughs) Let's move on to the Sermon on the Mount, because um, I think this is another uh, another uh, great example of Jesus uh, in the wild. Um, the, it, you know, the text says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up into the mountainside and sat down. Um, why the mountainside? I mean, I think there's there's probably a practical answer to this, but I think, you know, I'm wondering if there might be a more spiritual answer to this. Well, I know we're running along, so I'm going to make this really quick. There's there's a lot of ways you can go with this, but I think what we're doing here is recapitulating some of the Hebrew Bible narratives where you have Moses on the mountain being a lawgiver, um, and Jesus is stepping into that role, I think, uh, creating a new Israel, a new identity, at least the way it is. And remember that the mountain is only in, um, in Matthew. We've got the Sermon on the Plain in Luke chapter 6. I was going to say something similar to the wilderness. Like there's a significance to the wilderness. There's a significance to the mountains. Things happen in the mountains. Yeah. Things happen in the mountains. Uh, Some of the most important revelations, most important teachings, most important spiritual events, Mount of Transfiguration, the receiving of the 10 commandments, the receiving of not coincidentally commandments that tend to center the margins, the people we are conditioned to leave behind. Like blessed are the, not all lives. Blessed are these people that we are traditionally conditioned to not 
pay any mind to. I think it's significant that a sermon in the mountain like also occurs in a similar spot to where we receive the most significant commandments, the most significant revelations, the literal passing of the guard to Jesus as the one who fulfills the law. Like I, I'm just going to point out that uh, the mountain is similar to the wilderness and the mountain in particular being the site of some of the most significant spiritual events and teachings and revelations that we have in the text. Exactly. I think um, there's plenty of examples of mountains being places where special things happen. That's why it's called Brokeback Mountain. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> see, these are the worst ones, the ones you don't see coming. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I didn't see that one coming at all. Yo, goodness. Congratulations. I, <laughs> I think I'm going to get an award from the KKK for increasing black pain. <laughs> like. <laughs> They're going to love what I do to James. Oh, that's funny. Yo. Um, So famously, the Sermon on the Mount is is one that kind of, it centers poorness. It centers sadness. It centers meekness and hunger. And I think all of these are are metaphors for emptiness. Um, why Why are these things such potent spiritual qualities? I mean, think about what those qualities force you to do. Like, I mean, these are the same qualities that people experience in the wilderness, the same kind of emptiness, the same kind of loneliness, the same kind of sense of wanting. Uh, There is a focus on these because it is in these conditions, like fasting, for example. I know a few times do I feel so close to God as when I fast, because like if I ain't going to be able to physically eat, I'm going to spiritually eat. You know what I'm saying? Somebody's going to feed me like (laughs) something. It is the same thing. Like if I don't got friends, if I'm lonely or if I am spiritually wanting or if I am physically wanting in any way, somebody's going to sustain me. And that's going to be that's going to that's going to be our heavenly parents. You know what I'm saying? So there's something to be said about these conditions being primers for spiritual instruction, for spiritual closeness, for a step into divinity. That is a. Uh, yeah, that's what I think the significance is, or you know, whatever big word you used was. I, I like it. I'm gonna potent I'm gonna spiritual qualities. Yes, yes. <laughs> They're potent spiritual qualities because they force us to step into the divine, or they encourage us to step into the divine. Right. And I think it's an issue of availability. It's the people that are on the margins that have no advantage of their own that are dependent on God. Oh, yeah. And it's when you're dependent on God that you are the most powerful. It's like what Paul says in, in second Corinthians 12, I think it is that when I am weak, I am strong. And the middle term that is left out is when I'm weak, I depend on Christ. And when I depend on Christ, I am strong. That is the central message of Paul um, here. And I think that's the central message here of the, uh, of, of the sermon on the Mount is that when you're dependent on your own, economic power, your own political power, your own ability to feed yourself, your own ability to stop people from dying, right? If you're dependent on all these things, what room is there for God? What room is there for beauty? What room is there for miracle? What availability is there for you to be what God wants you to be? But that's why Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, right? Blessed are all these people that the world thinks aren't very blessed and God turns those assumptions upside down in Christ and in us. Yes. 
I think that also encapsulates the answer to probably Madison's next question of how that emptiness creates spiritual freedom too. I think uh, you kind of covered it already um, through that explanation, because, you know, if, if all of those needs are met or if there is no absence, then there's no room to understand like what areas need spirituality or, or what areas you can improve on that spirituality as well. Yeah. That when you're, when you're such a champion at the game, um, that you have no, you have no incentive to, uh, to, to thirst after anything else because the game is already, you know, feeding you. Um, and that these qualities of poorness, sadness, meekness, and hunger, like those are the qualities of people who the game has failed. Um, and that it's only when the game fails you, are you then able to be used by God to, to, to be a tool in God's hand. And specifically a tool in God's hand to hopefully change the game yeah. one of these days. Uh, that's why some of the most powerful and potent and, uh, I suppose influential activists have been people on the margins and some of the most resilient people of faith that we have in all kinds of faith traditions are also people on the margins. Um, that's not a coincidence. And I just wanted to, to make sure that's named. So let's, let's move this towards a uh, close. Um, I, uh, I really have enjoyed our conversation. Um, do we have any final thoughts on, on Jesus as a wild figure? I'm just going to add one. You said Jesus was kind of a radical at the beginning of the show. I'm going to slightly amend that. Jesus was very much a radical, <laughs> very much a radical. Yeah. Um, you know, he, I, I say often that one of the most radical things about Jesus Christ was his compassion and how much he favored this radical compassion over stringent legalism. And it's one reason why like people despised him so much because he made things accessible to people to whom they shouldn't have been made accessible. Um, Jesus was so radical. People wanted to kill him. Like he upended power. He challenged traditional power structures, even though he wasn't the political leader people thought he was going to be, he was still very much a radical who totally threatened Roman imperial power and religion. Like, uh, even though the man was very unassuming, he was a nobody by most people's standards. And he spent most of his ministry preaching love and compassion and kindness and inclusion and equity and justice those were radical notions because they upended and they threatened the hierarchical power structures that existed. Jesus was a wild man in a radical because like to do that stuff willingly knowing the consequences and to do that stuff, threatening the most powerful and structure like in their faces to their faces, like that is both radical and wild. So uh, I just wanted to name that because I, I didn't want you to feel bad about saying Jesus was a radical. You said he was kind of a radical. I'm just going to say, no, he was very much. He was a super a radical. radical, super radical. That's why we worship him. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the one thing I want to say is, and maybe you're going to accuse me of being an academic on this, 
But what I find so beautiful is not our direct access to Jesus, um, the Jesus of history, but we have it filtered through um, other people's witness, other people's reflection on him, other people's processing of it. And people say from a historical standpoint, well, that's bad because now you've got all this stuff in between you and, and the real Jesus. But I'm like, that is the real Jesus, the Jesus that had an impact on people that transformed people. And now you see that transformation and you're transformed by that transformation. So I love the fact that this wild Jesus brings out the wildness in others. And we can see this in Dr. King and so many other Christian activists who um, use Jesus as a model for everything they did. And those things changed the world. And that's there's this there's this wildness there that I think we can recover through. It's like a kaleidoscope that you get. Uh, you're looking at some light, but it's filtered through all these other things, and it's actually more beautiful. I don't know if that makes any sense as to how how Jesus being uh, filtered through other people's <clears throat> writings, including all the human fingerprints, right? Like when we look at the Gospels, there's human fingerprints about how they portray jesus how they set jesus where they they set the uh sermon on the mountain or on the plain and speaking of wilderness there's just just one interesting textual detail in the gospel of luke that i want to talk about there's this phenomenon called editorial fatigue that happens when a an author is um making intentional changes to some source material, but then their fatigue sets in and they forget to make those, uh, sustain those changes throughout the whole thing. And then they end up relapsing to just more straightforwardly copying oh. their source. And uh, my view is that Matthew and Luke are dependent on Mark and Mark was written first and Mark was used as a source for both of those. So if that's the case, then here's what happened in, in, uh, We've got the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark chapter 6, which is set out in the wilderness, right? They're out in the wilderness, far from, from everywhere. There's no place to go and buy food. They're out in, in the wilderness. Now, what Luke does is he resets this from the wilderness to the city. It's very clear. The city is there. Um, Bethsaida is the name of the city. We, we know this. And so there's, there's places to go buy food. They're not like 10 days journey away from anywhere. But Luke makes that change at the beginning, but fails to sustain that change throughout. And then has the disciples saying, in Luke, why are we in the middle of this deserted place <laughs> in Luke when they're in a city? So um, people are going to say, oh, no, there's a flaw. There's a mistake in the gospel. I'm like, no, but that's beautiful. We can see that they're people like us. They're characterizing Jesus the best they can with what they have. They're bringing the power of Jesus into their life and they're, they're reshaping the story and they're passing the baton onto another generation who's going to do the same thing. And I think we are absolutely justified in claiming Jesus as a radical, as a liberal, uh, because that's the Jesus that we've received. And that's the Jesus that we are passing on. And that's the Jesus that I know and love. And I think that's the same Jesus that visited Joseph and um, and did something new and did something wild and did something that the leaders, the, the religious leaders of Joseph's day could not predict and were not prepared for and rejected. So that's where I'm probably going to end this. Abby, any final for thoughts? Now. For, now. <laughs> for now. No, I think that's, I mean, I've really enjoyed our conversation and I feel like that's a perfect way to to kind of tie those, those loose ends from the rest of the episode. So thank you both. 
Yeah, I just to tie a bow on this, like I think um, uh, we kind of get in the habit of of largely thanking Jesus for something that he did for us, right? Rather than emulating Jesus or, or living life in the way that he did um, and following Jesus. Um, and I, I think that that, uh, as we, as you know, we started this thing by talking about Christology and as we, we kind of live into maybe a lower Christology or a higher anthropology, you know, kind of thing, um, that we can, we can see a path towards, um, towards maybe following Jesus is our path. And what following Jesus looks like is it looks like, like raising the valleys and lowering the mountains. And it looks like like extending some radical compassion, radical inclusion in this world that is predicated on exclusivity and about clubs and about the game and about money and status and power. And that following Jesus is is our call to to end that game. <laughs> right. And that seems like it's the best thanks is to live a life that imitates Jesus and, and not just a verbal thanks. But a description. Transform life. Yep. Cool. Any final thoughts from you guys? Don't say that because I I could still talk <laughs> for another few hours. Right. I just got started. And uh, but yeah, we should probably stop. <laughs> well, that's well, just a good invitation for us to um, have you back on the show. Yeah. So. Absolutely. Oh, so my <laughs> see my jokes weren't bad. They want me back, James. Take that. I, not because your jokes, sir. I'm gonna just name that too. Thank you for joining us in the spiritual wilds on this episode of Bristlecone Firesides. If you're vibing with this podcast, please share widely with your friends, family, and neighbors, and consider leaving us a five-star rating or written review through the podcasting app of your choice. Screenshot your review and tag us on Instagram or Twitter, and we'll hook you up with some free Bristlecone Fireside stickers. This season's beautiful cover art was provided by Ash Rowan Designs, and our fresh new music was composed by Brenton Jackson. Bristlecone Firesides is a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network. The Dialogue Podcast Network features many great podcasts exploring LDS faith through diverse and rigorous scholarship. Please visit dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network to learn more. For more from Madison, Abby, and the Bristlecone family, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or TikTok, and visit our website to enjoy more earthy content on faith, activism, and belonging to the earth. From the Red Rock Deserts and High Mountains of Utah, we wish you peace and goodness as you strive to become one with this good and wild earth. Thank you.